certainly from a colloquial standpoint, teenagers are stupid. And the reason they're stupid is because cognitive development hasn't caught up with their bodies. Things like impulse control, the internalization of consequences, these are things that are severely limited during the teenage years. And these are things that are crucial in terms of using alcohol moderately. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The holiday of Purim is coming up very soon. I think that a lot of us would call it, if not the happiest day on the Jewish calendar, then the most fun holiday that we have. Chazal discussed the idea of Adelo Yada, the apparent requirement to become drunk until one does not know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Regardless of the meaning of this halacha, and remember even assuming it is the law, the law isn't to reach the level where Haman and Mordechai are indistinguishable, but rather where the concepts of cursing evil and blessing good are the same. Nonetheless, much of the religious world, particularly among those with yeshiva backgrounds, look at this as an opportunity to get, frankly, completely plastered and wasted. And teachers and even parents have been known to encourage their students and kids to indulge as well. Are we putting ourselves, our students, our children in danger? Lest anyone think that I'm pointing fingers, let me make it very clear that I'm no innocent. For 11 years, I was the co-rosh yeshiva of a post-high school yeshiva in Israel. And before that, I was a teacher in a different yeshiva. During all that time, I certainly presided over plenty of Purim excess. While as the years passed, I began to get a bit disgusted by the excessive drinking, I considered that more a function of my getting older rather than a realization that perhaps this was not Darkash al-Torah, the proper Torah approach. However, in recent years, I've realized that the common emphasis on Purim drinking, and let's face it, even casual drunkenness that occurs on Shabbatot and other Chagim, is likely far more damaging than we want to acknowledge. Is alcoholism, alcohol abuse, excessive drinking a problem in the Orthodox world? on Purim, or any other time. To find out more, I spoke with my friend, Dr. Zev Gantz. I first met Zev when we coached our sons in Little League together four years ago, but today I'm speaking to him in his role as a therapist. Dr. Zev Gantz earned a master's degree from the Wurzweiler School of Social Work of Yeshiva University and a doctoral degree from the Smith College School for Social Work. He completed postgraduate training in individual and family therapy at the Family Institute of Neve Yerushalayim, with a focus on working with children, adolescents, and their families, as well as the treatment of child sexual abuse. He is also a certified practitioner of parent-child psychotherapy. Zev is currently a clinical supervisor, instructor, and founding director of research at the Family Institute of Neve Yerushalayim. He's a therapist and instructor at Machon Shiluv, and he maintains a private practice in Ramat Beit Shemesh and Jerusalem. Dr. Zev Gantz, thank you so much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Oh, it's really, it's my pleasure. I mean, I actually wanted to be on the baseball podcast, but, uh, but this one will do. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> Zev, I know you're not a sociologist, so this might not be a question you're comfortable answering, but I'm going to throw it out anyway. Sure. Do you think that there's a problem of excessive alcohol consumption among teenagers in particular in the Orthodox world? I think that depends on how we define the word problem. If we're defining the word problem is that there's something unique 
uh, about the amount of alcohol consumption among uh, Orthodox teenagers, then, then no. I, I wouldn't say that there's a specific or, or unique problem among, uh, among from kids. But uh, if we define problem as there are a lot of kids who are drinking, then, then yeah, I mean, absolutely. But what the statistics say, the research shows, is that in America, around 60% of 18-year-olds have gotten drunk uh, at least once. Uh, and, Not and, from kids, just in general. In general, yeah, yeah, kids, you know, eighteen-year-old kids in general in America. I'd, I'd have to assume. I don't know of any research uh, that states this directly, but I'd, I'd have to assume that we have about that level in uh, among from from teenagers as well. Well, that leads to the question that sixty percent of eighteen-year-olds have gotten drunk at least once. Is it a terrible thing for an eighteen-year-old to have gotten drunk once? In fact, maybe I could argue that he got drunk, maybe he hated it, and now he's not going to be a problem drinker. I don't know. Well. There's also research that shows that the younger the consumption of alcohol, the higher the likelihood of developing dependence uh, as time goes on. Now, there's some debate about that statistic because that's what we call a correlation. And if you've, anyone who's taken intro to psych knows that correlation does not equal causation. So again, it could be that people who, are, who will get addicted to substances later on will just start earlier. Or there's actually some evidence that shows that earlier consumption actually does lead. In other words, it's causative of later uh, dependence. And when you say consumption, do you mean problem consumption or even having a shot at Kiddush once a week with his father in attendance? I, I think it's more excessive consumption. Mm-hmm. Okay. Although there's, there's some debate about that as well. Then that leads to the question about alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. What sort of warning signs are there for actual alcohol abuse? Mm-hmm. And I mean in particular among kids, among teenagers, let's say. I'd say in particular, what should parents be looking for to know that there actually is a problem rather than the kids just drinking with his dad at Kiddush and it's normal and accepted in the Orthodox world that way? Yeah, again, the only way to know that there's alcohol abuse is for there to be alcohol abuse, is to see alcohol abuse. That's really one of the only clear definitive signs. Now, What's the definition of abuse? That's also tricky, especially when it comes to, to teenagers. One of the reasons it's tricky with teenagers is because it's it's pretty clear that Alcohol use, not even abuse, but alcohol use among teenagers is just a a clear negative. Uh, One of the reasons for that, I mean, the number of reasons for that, one of the reasons for that is that we know that the human brain develops until about the age of 25. And and the teenage years are a particularly sensitive uh, time period for brain development. And there's also clear evidence that alcohol consumption, even moderate consumption, has significant impact on brain development. That's one reason that it's a clear negative. The other reason that alcohol consumption during teenage years is a very, very clear negative is because we can sort of liken teenagers to new drivers behind the wheel of a Ferrari. In other words, they've been gifted this new adult body, but cognitive development is still catching up. This is why, you know, you look at teenagers and they're kind of stupid. Um, you don't say. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I don't know if that's a, a, a professional diagnosis, but certainly from I'll a, accept it. Certainly from a colloquial standpoint, teenagers are stupid. And the reason they're stupid is because cognitive development hasn't caught up with their bodies. Things like impulse control, the internalization of consequences, these are things that are severely limited during the teenage years. And these are things that are crucial in terms of using alcohol moderately. As someone who used to run a yeshiva for 18-year-olds, I can confirm that one of the challenges that we had annually, it was constant, is the fact that our students are effectively physically adults and therefore consider themselves adults, but cognitively, in terms of their maturity, their understanding of rights, responsibilities, and consequences, they were not nearly adults yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when we as adults look at them, it's sometimes uh, really difficult to understand how they could be so limited in their understanding, but that's part and parcel of being a teenager. 
What you just said actually reminds me of something which I heard for many years, and it sounds like you're saying that it's not true, and that is people say there's less alcoholism among Jews, or at least among religious Jews, because they're introduced to alcohol in a moderate way as kids, as part of Kiddush on Friday night, as part of Kiddush on Shabbos morning, and therefore they see alcohol not as something which is taboo only for adults, but something which they're allowed to do, obviously in moderation, and that helps prevent alcohol abuse as they get older. You're saying that's not true at all. Well, I've heard that as well, and what I'm saying is that I don't know. This speaks to a debate that's going on right now in professional circles, which is how do we relate to children and alcohol use? There's one camp, and this is probably among uh, specialists in addiction. This is more of the the accepted norm, which again states that uh, because alcohol use among teenagers is a clear negative, so then we should take a stance that's very, very clearly against alcohol use in teenagers. Now, there's another camp that takes a a different approach, uh, which might be termed a harm reduction approach, which says that even though it's true that teenage use is a net negative, teenagers are going to drink no matter what. And given that fact, so it's a question of how we position ourselves vis-a-vis that drinking. And if we take a very, very clear prohibitive stance against drinking, kids are just going to go underground and they're going to do it uh, on their own terms without adults being there to, to monitor. This camp also takes the approach which you just mentioned, which is that if we introduce drinking to kids with adult supervision, that can teach them responsible use. I don't necessarily see that. I don't think the research confirms that position either. Now, I do think we can take a more nuanced approach, which is some combination of these two perspectives, which we could take a very, very clear position that teenage drinking is not a good thing. I'm not talking about giving them a little kiddish on Shabbos. Uh, I, I don't really think that's where that's really where the issue lies. But we could take a position where we say that uh, teenage drinking is a is a negative. We're against it, and recognize that kids are going to do it anyway. Uh, and I think that's actually an important line to to straddle, which we do with lots of other issues in any event, such as, for example, pornography. A- any nuanced parent will recognize that kids, especially teenage boys, are going to watch pornography. But I don't think anyone says, well, I want to teach my kids responsible use of pornography. And so, you know, maybe I'll sit down by the computer with him and, and you know, watch a few movies. Uh, we can both take a position that is against pornography and recognize that there's a decent chance that our kids are going to utilize this. Effectively not freaking out when you see that they're doing it. Right. While at the same time not approving of it. Exactly. Accepting that it might happen without approving of the action per and se. And that's important because then we can, we can do things like maintain communication with our kids Rabbi Yaakov Haaretz, has, he espouses a position which I think is very useful, which is a, a no-questions-asked policy on picking up kids. So if kids are out, if teenagers are out at night and they call mom and dad uh, and ask to be picked up, that the kids know that they can do that, uh, and no matter what state they're in, mom and dad, when they pick them up, are not going to ask any questions. Hmm. Uh, and what that does is it allows kids to not hide the fact or not do really dangerous things like get into a car with someone who's drinking and driving. Because they're afraid of mom and dad. Exactly. Oh, very interesting. So let me move it into a slightly different direction. Let's assume that somebody sees in his child what he thinks is an alcohol problem, some Mm -hmm. sort of problem drinking or potential abuse of alcohol. What should that parent do? Is it enough to simply eliminate alcohol from the house? Or is that even counterproductive? What would you advise a parent who sees this in his child? Well, I certainly don't think that removing alcohol from the home is counterproductive. I think it's an initial step, but, but you know, probably not a sufficient step. Again, if we're really talking about alcohol abuse, then this is something that really demands professional attention. After uh, removing alcohol from, from the home, this is where a, a mental health professional who has experience in working with families and working with teens needs to be consulted. 
And there's a question there of what the uh, intensity of the intervention needs to be. And, and that's really going to depend, that's going to be situation to situation. So for example, a teenager who's coming home drunk and is becoming physically aggressive with family members, that's going to need to be treated differently than a, a teenager that's coming home drunk and is you know, sleeping it off and coming late to school. Both mm-hmm. might be termed dependence, but the, the intensity of the intervention may need to be different in both of the situations. Now, what happens if somebody sees somebody who has probably an alcohol problem, but it's not his own child. What would you recommend, for example, if you have a guy come over, a friend of your child comes over, or a student who's learning for the year in Israel and he comes over to your house, and you see him going at the bottle a little bit too much or a lot too much, mm-hmm. what's the next step? It's not your own child, this case. Yeah, that's a hard one. Uh, and a lot of that's going to depend on the nature of the relationship you have to that person. What I will say is that lots of people will shy away from saying anything and rationalize that it's better not to say anything because it's not going to be listened to anyway. I think it's important to think twice about that because even if what is said right now has no immediate impact, there might be some uh, residual impact and it may be useful down the line. So Zev, this episode is being released right around Rosh Chodesh Adar. We're getting into the Purim spirit with all the various implications of that term. Yes. Purim drinking, Adlo Yada. Does that send the wrong message? Well, let me start with this. I think that most kids who drink on Purim will not become addicted. They may get drunk, and that's probably not the best thing in the world, but it is what it is. But yeah, I do think there is some risk in Purim, especially how it's treated by some people and in some circles. What do you mean by that? Well, specifically what I mean is I think that to the extent that Purim is treated as the time of the year where you can really let loose. And this is the time of the year that we have fun. This is the pinnacle. Getting drunk is sort of the pinnacle of our year. Then it does send a certain message about drinking. Um, And I I do think that that message uh, certainly can be internalized. You mean, in other words, the ultimate fun day is also the big drinking day? Right, exactly. Listen, I I think that that we also have to be aware that there are going to be a subset of people in general and kids and and also kids who are at risk for addiction. Um, Now, how do we deal with that other than going completely dry? I'm, I'm not sure, but it, it is something to really be sensitive to that there's going to be a segment of the population here who we're, we're really putting at risk with, with all the uh, available alcohol. I think we also have to look at how we experience or we give messages about the place of fun and excitement throughout the year. If Perm is seen as the only time of the year where we're allowed to have fun, you know, I'm, I think I'm speaking specifically about yeshivas. So if, if that's the only time that fun is allowed or fun is idealized or fun is espoused, then inevitably we can't get around the fact that that's going to be associated with drinking and fun is going to be fun, excitement, that there's going to be a connection made between fun and drinking. And it's not just drinking because I'm sure you've seen as I have that there are all sorts of other quote unquote deviant behaviors that are on Purim somewhat allowed, whether it's smoking or various other actions that would normally be at least frowned upon or at least, or even more so perhaps prohibited, on Purim it's okay. If that's considered the fun day, then we're sending a strange message. Right. In that case, let's assume that abstinence isn't realistic. Okay. And let's assume that someone believes that there's a mitzvah of Adelu Yada. And the reason that I say some believe is that there certainly are opinions among them, the Taz, who say that the din of Adelu Yada that one should drink until he can't tell the difference between blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman, that din actually isn't halacha lamase because the immediate story afterwards 
in the Gemara is about a rabbi who killed another rabbi when he fulfilled that mitzvah. Some understand that as a rejection of mm-hmm. that law. Right. Let's not work with that. Let's work okay. with the common understanding that one should get drunk on Purim. How do you think someone should implement that law if one wants to follow it? Again, this goes um, a little bit above my pay grade, so I, I, I might punt on this uh, on this question because uh, I think we're straying into the realm of, of halacha. I think what I would just say here is that the consequences of drinking and the impact that it's going to have on kids should be part of this question. In that case, in yeshivot, Purim is a time, as you already said, and as is self-evident, people get absolutely plastered. It's not even that they have a little bit to drink or even a lot to drink. There often is excessive drinking from my own experience, it can get pretty disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I don't pretend that when I ran a yeshiva, I was exempt from this or I did differently. This is what happens in yeshivot. What would you, as a therapist, advise yeshiva administrators, yeshiva teachers who are having guys over their houses for their Purim Suda? What would you advise them to do? What would you recommend that they do on Purim? Let's assume the answer again is that abstinence isn't realistic, mm-hmm. that the kids won't accept that, not that you have to listen to the kids, but let's, let's play the game of reality over here. What should somebody do? Well, I think before we we skip over abstinence, I think that you're right. I, I don't think kids will listen to that, and kids are going to get drunk. That doesn't necessarily mean that the yeshiva has to take part in the dispersal of, of alcohol. And, and, and I certainly don't know that that means it has to be encouraged. If we go with the assumption, then what I would say is that I, I do believe it's the responsibility of the yeshiva to educate kids about uh, about alcohol. Rebeah may be concerned that they're going to be looked at as squares. I can understand that. But what the research does very, very clearly show is that even when uh, teenagers are indicating that they are ignoring us as adults, the messages of adults do penetrate and, and they are substantial. But let's face it, Zev, you and I both know that by and large, yeshivot are not doing this. They are generally not educating their students about alcohol abuse or proper consumption of alcohol. And moreover, on Purim... Not only the students, but the teachers in yeshivot very often get extraordinarily drunk and even encourage their students to drink. Are the yeshivot thereby abdicating their responsibility? I think that yeshivas certainly have a responsibility to uh, ensure kids' safety, and I think part of that, uh, in the same way that that there's a tremendous amount of time spent on educating kids about perm in general, there should be some time spent speaking to kids, uh, if if not educating them about uh, responsible drinking. I'm going to read you a piece of an article written by Chaim Ovadia in the foreword from two years ago, February 27th, 2018. This is the excerpt. He writes, let me tell you some personal stories. I grew up in the core of Haredi Jerusalem among Sephardic Chachamim and Hasidic Jews, followers of the Rebbe of Bells and the Rebbe of Ger, who both lived in my neighborhood. On Purim, you could see seven-year-old boys smoking and teenagers holding drinks. When I was in yeshiva, I've experienced it myself at the Seud at my rabbi's house, as the rabbis and fellow students encouraged me to keep drinking. I look back at that scene with horror, but back then it felt good. I felt giddy and funny, the center of attention, and as a friend told me the next day, when I woke up in my bed in my dorm, I spoke for hours, threw up at the rabbi's house during prayers, and passed out. I decided to never again fall in that trap. But it happened one more time. Years later, when I was married with children, we were invited to a suda with a friend who was a seasoned drinker. He passed away at a young age of liver complications. He dragged me into some kind of a drinking match, and by the evening, I behaved in a way that endangered my life. The next day, I promised my distraught wife, who had to take care of two babies and a third grown-up one, that this will never happen again, and thank God I have kept my word and I rarely drink at all. But the story which should really worry all of us is that of a classmate of my son in Yeshiva Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn. 
That teenager was drinking on Purim night at the yeshiva, even though the mitzvah to drink is only during the day, in a party attended and supported by the rabbis and the staff when he decided to slit his wrists. Luckily, Hatzalah of Flatbush is located just around the corner from the yeshiva, and the boy was saved, but this could have ended terribly. You know, Zev, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast right now will say that this person writing the article is simply alarmist, that what he describes as endangering his life, someone slitting his wrists, come on. 99.9% of the time, nothing like that or even close to that is going to take place. And by prohibiting drinking at all, which is certainly his implication, I believe, then you're simply ruining Purim for the kids who are not going to do this. What's your feeling about that? Well, it's certainly not 99.9% of the time things go well. Um, I don't know what the statistic is, but but it's not anywhere close to, to, to that. I think what was interesting about the excerpt that you quoted uh, was that the, the author mentioned that he felt funny and loose in social situations. That is a classic pathway of addiction. This is well documented that kids, especially shy kids, uh, who have always felt high levels of social anxiety, they take a couple of drinks, they go to a party, and they are suddenly are transformed into something that they never were before. And everybody likes it. Everyone likes it. And this is a very, very classic pathway to, uh, to addiction. Now, th- this author took... Uh, an, an opposite path where he became frightened of what happened to him and he swore off alcohol, but it could have just as easily gone the other way. As I said before, as of earlier in this podcast, you're not a sociologist, you're a therapist, and it could be that what I'm about to ask doesn't fit under the rubric of your area of expertise. Nonetheless, I want to ask about drinking in the adult Jewish world. We know about kiddish clubs that exist in many synagogues. People go out during the Haftarah to drink, now let's leave aside the halakha question of leaving shul during the haftarah or of coming back from Musaf when they're tipsy. That's a different question. But what's your opinion about the propriety of kiddush clubs for adults? We're not talking about kids now. We're talking about adults, although it will have an effect on the way kids see things. Well, I'll leave aside the question of propriety. I guess I'll go to the question of what the impact might be on, on kids. A lot of this goes to the question of modeling. Modeling is a, is a theory proposed by a social psychologist named Albert Bandura. Um, and he, back in the 60s, he was running studies, which also uh, anyone to, who took intro to psych probably learned about this as well. And in these studies, these were really interesting studies where he brought kids, he got them upset, he, he brought them into a room he, with lots of great toys, and he said, sorry, you can't play with these toys. These are toys for other kids. So he got them upset. Agav, um, Social psychologists, the, the studies that were run back in the 60s and 70s were just horrific. <laughs> Cruelty abounded. Right. Yeah, it's not a joke. But he then, so he got them upset. And then he took them into a room where they, there was a control group which watched adults just playing with toys. And another, and in, uh, in the study group, there were adults who smashed around a bobo doll with a bat. In other words, the kids were, were exposed to watching adults engage in violent behavior. They then introduced the kids into the room with the bobo doll. And what he found was that the kids who had seen the adults smashing the, the bobo doll with the bat were much more likely to engage in aggressive behavior with the, with the bobo doll. This is the, a, a fairly intuitive concept called modeling, which means that children uh, observe their surroundings and imitate what they see around them. I go into this because I think this is a, a, a fairly basic question when it comes to something like kiddish clubs. I think kiddish clubs are sending a very clear message, which is that alcohol is something not only to be used recreationally, but something to be idealized. I think the, what, at least what I've observed is that the culture around kiddish clubs very much is an idealizing one around whichever bottle or bottles are, are being used. And I, I do think that, and, and 
you know, research does show that kids pick up on these messages. It begs the question, is this really what we want to be teaching our kids? Do we want to be teaching our kids that alcohol is not just something that can be enjoyed with regulation and moderation, but is an ideal and something to be lionized? Zev, do you think that drinking itself is something that leads towards harder drugs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or is it something which can prevent people from using harder drugs because they already have their outlet to go crazy? This is the classic uh, gateway drug question. And this is alcohol and marijuana are typically established or, or looked at as as gateway drugs. Um, I'm skeptical of the idea of, of gateway drugs. Uh, in other words, when we, when we usually think of a gateway drug, we usually think that this is something that leads. In other words, that there's a causative uh, relationship between the drug between this drug, say marijuana or alcohol, and harder drugs like cocaine or heroin. In other words, taking these drugs will lead, will cause one to move to the to the harder drugs. Because of the desire to get a stronger and stronger high. Right. And the truth of the matter is, I, I don't know that that's true. It could be. But again, this goes back to correlation, not eating, not equaling causation. In other words, it's inevitably people who who eventually end up with harder drugs are going to start with these lighter drugs. They're going to start with alcohol and or marijuana. And so it's not necessarily clear that this leads to harder use, but people who go who end up in, with harder drugs will inevitably start with these. If, even if we do say that alcohol may not be a gateway drug, I think we could still state, and it's, it's important that, that it be restated, that this doesn't mean that alcohol is a good thing, especially for teenagers. And that's, that, I think, is where we start. We don't need to get to the place where it, it is a gateway drug, it's not a gateway drug, whatever the case may be. Alcohol is enough of a negative for teenagers where we can say that it's uh, it's worth it to, to keep a distance. Even without all the other possible consequences. Even without all the other consequences. So Zev, this has been so enlightening, and I hope our listeners take it seriously. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are listening with a lot of skepticism and perhaps even rolling their eyes, but seeing what goes on in Purim in so many places, it can sometimes be, apart from disgusting, something which is troubling and at times illegal, and certainly a problematic entryway into what drinking is supposed to be and what fun is supposed to be. So before we end, what advice would you give to a parent or adult who is confronted with underage drinking? I think the most important uh, message to give to parents with, who are noticing that their kids are, are drinking excessively or kids who are uh, d- developing independence is that the, the biggest protective factor in the development of an addiction is the relationship with a caregiver. When a, a child or a teenager feels like they have someone to talk to, that they're in a secure relationship, it changes things considerably. And the fact that teenagers are engaging in, in this behavior makes it a real, a real, real challenge to, to, to keep a positive relationship with, uh, with kids. Um, but that's really the most important function that a parent can play. And I think this starts even before, hopefully before, a teenager gets there. In other words, if the infrastructure of an open relationship, a relationship where anything can be communicated, where there's constant contact, constant care between a parent and a child, if that infrastructure is there, then what happens, chas v'shalom, if the, the child does get to a place where there's some uh, substance dependence, um, things are, will, will be uh, drastically different than if there's not. And before you cited Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, who actually was a guest on this podcast a couple of months ago, when Rabbi Horowitz said that a parent, when picking up his child at night, if the child calls him, there should be a policy of, I'm not going to ask any questions. How do you integrate that with the fact that a parent obviously has to sometimes ask some questions about what's going on? It doesn't mean that there's no rules. 
and we have to make the differentiation between very, very clear rules of the house. That Those are essential. Those need to be discussed between parents. Those need to be set and consistent. And the underlying relationship, which even within those rules can still be positive and loving. So open communication, once again, is the answer. Who knew? Who knew? Dr. Zev Gantz, thank you so much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. I appreciate it. It's really my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Remember to subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast provider. If you like this podcast, please help us out by sharing it on Facebook or Twitter. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com, which has been recently revamped for lots of great podcasts, including The Orthodox Conundrum, Intimate Judaism, The Francisca Show, Chochmat Nashim, and much more. When you're there, make sure to sign up on our new Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you can gain access to premium content like Ask the Rabbis, you can get excellent merchandise, and more. I'm Scott Kahn. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>